0: Well, good morning, and uh, thank you all for having me. It's uh, such a joy to be here. It can get lonely in Jonesboro. Um, (laughs) There's only one PCA church there, uh, Christ Redeemer, a wonderful church that was planted about three years ago, and then an RUF, so there's only a few ministers. It's good to see the Lord at work bringing people unto himself and into our great denomination uh, all over the state of Arkansas. So thank you all for having me. We, uh, as Brad mentioned, moved from Birmingham, Alabama to Jonesboro, Arkansas just about four months ago, and we're starting to get the work of RUF going at Arkansas State, which is a great campus. If you've never been to Jonesboro, we would love to have you and show you the campus. Uh, The Lord is moving and working through uh, this ministry and and even uh, in spite of this ministry on campus a lot of times. We, uh, most of my weeks, since we are a plant, I don't have a ton of programs to be running, so a lot of my work is meeting one-on-one with students that the Lord has kind of brought to me or I've gone out and pursued, and in any given week, I'm meeting with students of all types of spiritual backgrounds, those who, in, in reality, have never opened a Bible in their life, and those who uh, bring their Bible to class with them and are so distracted by reading their Bible, they're not listening to their actual class, <laughs> so... Um, there's all types of students, and that's why the work of RUF is so great, because we get to speak the gospel into both unbelievers and believers alike and hopefully encourage them to walk in faith with Christ. One of the main themes that I guess I'm not surprised by since I've done student ministry before, that, but one that we're running into a lot on campus is an immense amount of discouragement. That students look at their own uh, abilities, look at their own you know, competency And often see what is a great lack. Uh, They see a lot of weakness. And then for the believing students, they also see not only just their lack of ability for the task at hand, but they see a great amount of sin. And they're deeply, deeply discouraged. And a privilege of my job is I get to walk alongside and encourage them with the scriptures. And, you know, get them along in faith. And I say all this to know that I also know that you in this room, many of you, are discouraged. And unless you're blinded by your pride, you see your weaknesses. You see your insufficiencies, and I'm with you. And I think why this text is so great for us today is it calls us back to faith. It calls us back to faith and confidence, not in our own strength. It doesn't give us a pep talk. That's not what Paul's doing here. But it calls us to rest and to be refreshed and be confident in the strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you would... Join with me uh, in your Bibles as I read aloud for us the text today, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that... But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be pleasing to you our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. John is a sophomore at Arkansas State University, and John was raised in a believing household, and he really doesn't know a time in his life where he wasn't a Christian, where he didn't know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. John loves the Lord. John loves God's Word, and John loves God's people. He loves the church and the mission of the church. However, like all of us in this room, John struggles with habitual sin. John struggles with a lot of sin in his life that he is really, really discouraged about. And, I'm, and to be honest, it's actually encouraging for me because I don't think I've ever hated my sin as much as John hates his sin. That's the great thing about campus ministry is we grow from students as well. But all of these things, as I, I'm kind of talking through them, I, they sound great. But one thing that's not so great is that John's hate of his sin, his discouragement with his sin is so overwhelming and overpowering that he's lost almost all joy in his salvation. And he's really been rendered ineffective for kingdom work because he's turned inward, he's gotten so discouraged, he's gotten so downtrodden, he's in despair, that his sin uh, is not leaving him. And he does not know how how to move on from this. The problem here is that his conviction of sin, which was no doubt a gift from God, a gift from the Holy Spirit, has turned into a form of self-condemnation because Satan has whispered the lie to him that you are the sum total of all your sins, that that's where your identity is. And that's what Satan tries to do. That's what the enemy tries to do to all believers, to turn our conviction into an unhealthy self-condemnation. My pastor back in Birmingham said one time that Satan's best weapon against believers is to get them really, really discouraged. Because when we are discouraged and distracted by our own weaknesses, we cease to rejoice, and we cease to be effective in kingdom work because it is the joy that is the essence, the energy of our work in the world. In Romans 5, verses 1 through 5 in this text, we see Paul uses the word rejoice a couple of times. And the reason for our rejoicing that we see in this text and that we'll look at is not that we are so strong and we're so competent and we're so sanctified and holy that we can just rejoice in our own strength. No. The reason for Paul's rejoicing is that in spite of our weaknesses, Christ has been strong for us and has secured for us these incredible benefits of salvation. And the sermon title, if you look on your uh, worship guide, is the Believer's Benefits Package. And I just want to come and, and read God's Word to you today and us walk through it in order to remind you, even in the midst of your discouragement and despair, that you have an incredible benefits package. Not that you have to earn, but that's been given to you solely by grace. We're going to look at three different things that are involved in our benefits package as believers. The first one is peace, then we have hope, or peace, access, and then hope. So let's look at peace. We see in verse 1 that Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified in that first part of verse 1 is a big word that Paul uses throughout the book of Romans, and it means that you're blameless, that you're innocent, that in a courtroom you have been declared not guilty. And we see in Romans, if we look back at Romans 1 and 2, that God is the sovereign judge of all the universe, and all mankind, including us here in this room, are in his courtroom. And God is not an ignorant judge. God is not a lazy judge. God as it says in Romans 2, verse 16, judges all the secrets of men. He knows all the sins you try to hide from your spouse. He knows all the sins you try to hide from your family. He knows all the sins you try to hide from yourself. And he is going to judge them. And as Paul walks through the gospel in Romans, we see that he judges them not by giving you the punishment. He judges Christ on account of your sins. So when we get to this verse here in Romans 5, we are justified, we are blameless, we are declared not guilty, not through our own ability to argue our case, not through our own ability to make up for our debt, but through Christ by faith. That's what we see in verse 1. We have been justified by faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. On account of our justification in Christ, we see that we have incredible benefits. This first one Paul says at the end of verse one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The term peace in this passage invites us to imagine a war that has ceased. There's ceasefire now, a treaty that has been ratified. All hostility in what was once a hostile relationship has now gone away. Enemies have become allies. And I want you all to see the tense of the verb in the first passage, or in this, in this passage. We have peace with God. It doesn't say we're going to have peace with God. We have it right now. It's past tense. It's not something that we need to achieve. And I note that because oftentimes in our discouragement, in our despair, when we come face to face with our weakness, we often think that the baggage we bring into our relationship with God, our sin, makes our relationship with God tense, makes it hostile kind of creates a barrier between us and God, and we think we have to make up the difference. I think one of the ways we often try to make up the difference when we're faced with our sin and think our relationship with God is in despair is we do what's called penance. This is the old Catholic uh, sacrament of penance. And all penance means is you try to be really, really sorry for your sin, and if you show that God that you're sorry enough for your sin, then he will restore you back to a peaceful relationship a really funny way I used to try to do this. Uh, I came to know the Lord in 7th and 8th grade around that time of a process, and I used to have a horrible mouth in 7th and 8th grade, like every middle schooler who thought they were cool. Um, and I was, felt really convicted and really guilty because after I came to Christ, I was like, I shouldn't talk like this anymore, but some, I, d- I didn't know that you know, my flesh was still in war. So I, w- I would say bad words, and I was telling my friends how I didn't want to say bad words anymore, And I was like, how can I stop? And they told me, you know what you should do, Austin? You should put a rubber band around your wrist. And every time you say a bad word, you should pop yourself with it. And they didn't explain to me, like, hey, this is a good way of breaking a habit. So what I thought was that if I said a bad word and I popped myself with the rubber band, that was showing to God that I was really, really sorry. I was saying, God, you don't have to punish me. You don't have to pay me back for my sin. Look, I did it myself. And maybe... Y'all don't do this in this uh, kind of foolish of a way, but oftentimes we are really hard on ourselves. We self-impose judgment. We wallow in our sin. Instead of running to the grace that we have in Christ, we have peace with God. We don't have to do penance. Do we still confess our sins? Yes, but confession is different from penance. Confession is always followed with the guarantee of absolution. So we confess confidently. We confess knowing that we will have the assurance of pardon just around the corner. We don't do penance wondering if we're ever going to have peace with God. We have it. The next benefit we see, as Paul continues in verse 2, he says, Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The language Paul uses in the second verse that we have access into the grace in which we stand is language adopted from the Old Testament temple ritual where God desired in his great love to dwell with his people, but since his people's sins had not been atoned for, he was not able to dwell with them freely because his people's sin, Israel's sin, was a threat to his holiness, and he had to maintain perfect righteousness. But because God in His grace, wants to be with His people, He created a very mediated way for Him to dwell with His people. This was the Old Testament priesthood, where the people were kind of with God in a sense, but God was in the temple, God was in the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest, after He had made atonement for His sins, was really able to have access, full access to God. I say all this, and I remind us of all this, so that we realize how great of a benefit and how treasured of a benefit access to God really is that in our weakness in our sin Paul telling us that we have access the Old Testament saints would never have dreamed of this they couldn't even fathom it but God in Christ has become our great high priest and has atoned once and for all as Hebrews 10 tells us for all of our sins so that we don't have mediated access anymore in the sense of the Old Testament. Christ is our mediator, which means we, in Christ, in our union with Him, have full access into the grace in which we stand, which means you stand in a state of grace. You stand confidently. You stand boldly. You stand unmoved in a state of grace, even in your weaknesses. God loves you. God is for you in Christ. But, Our discouragement always lies to us. The enemy is whispering lies to us, telling us that if we want to have access to God's love and God's favor, then you know we need we need to get our act together, or our sins are really hindering that. A story of how this works. uh, I'll I'll give an illustration. I went to the University of Alabama, which is, uh, as most of you probably know, a big football school, and in 2012. Uh, I was a student, I was a, a sophomore at Alabama, and in 2012 we played Texas A&M at Alabama. And this was a really big game, and I you know, shudder to even think about it because we lost that game. Um, but this, the point is not the game. The point is that two days after the game, a story came out, and it was a really interesting, a really funny story uh, that I thought I would share today. Uh, a Texas A&M fan had showed up to the game, in one of the Texas A&M coaches' polos. like You can buy the exact collared shirts that the coaches wear. That's why they wear them, because Nike wants to sell them. But he showed up to the game wearing exactly what the coaches wear, and he was just going to watch the game in the stadium. But he realized, hey, my seats are terrible. I see this little sidewalk down by the the sideline. I'm going to go see if I can see better down by the sideline. There's about a 10-foot fence, or an 8-foot fence, actually, that keeps people from the sideline where the players are and where the game's happening, from you know, the stands. So he was looking around. He was kind of standing by the fence. He couldn't see the game that great, but he realized that the security guards by the fence were not watching him, but they were watching the game since it was such a good game. So at a big play in the game in the first quarter, this guy gets the guts and says, I'm going to jump the fence. And he jumped the fence when everybody wasn't looking, and he blended in because he was wearing the exact same thing the coaches were wearing. So his friends, who are standing on the side, start taking pictures of him. Throughout the the second quarter, throughout the third quarter, he's giving waters to players. He's standing in the offensive huddle. This is a great way for, you know, maybe Alabama should have infiltrated their sideline in some secret way. But he is with the team the whole time because he's playing the part, and he's wearing the clothes. And it's about up till six minutes left in the game that he blows his cover, that people realize, that security realizes, this guy shouldn't be there. He was you know, acting badly on the sideline. You could tell he wasn't there, or supposed to be there, and they escorted him out. I tell this funny story not just to laugh, but because I think this is often how we feel in our sin and in our shame about the access that we have to God. Oftentimes, when, this, when Satan accuses us and when our consciences accuse us, we think that maybe we just snuck on to the team. Maybe everybody else is supposed to be here, but maybe I'm just kind of a fraud. Maybe I'm just kind of a fake. Or maybe God, in his kindness, let me on the team, but it's my job to really prove that I'm worthy of staying on the team, that I'm worthy of being here. And what happens when we do this is we often make the Christian life about pursuing personal holiness and righteousness for our own benefit because we want to fake it. We want to get really good at acting like we're someone who's supposed to be there. And though our lives may look holy, though we may look really pious, we're very anxious, we're very insecure, and the only reason we're doing it is for our own sake, not the glory of God, not for the good of others. But this is not the type of access that we have to God. You didn't sneak onto God's team in Christ. You're not responsible for keeping yourself there in Christ. By grace, we have been placed in a state of grace. God wants you there. God loves you. God wants you on the team, even in spite of your weaknesses. God doesn't tolerate you. In Christ, he truly loves you and cares for you. And what this frees us up to do is to actually pursue holiness for the right reasons. Not trying to keep ourselves on the team, not trying to somehow make up for all the insufficiencies we see inside. We pursue holiness because we love God and love his character and want to mirror it to the world. And we care for people in the world instead of just caring for ourselves. So this passage, we see these two great benefits, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Lastly, the last benefit we see is that we have hope. Hope is a word that the world defines much different than the Bible. You know, we say things like, I hope my team wins today, or I hope I get this job, I hope this boy likes me. But really, those things are just optimism, you know, a simple wish with no guarantee that it's really going to happen. That is not what biblical hope is. Hope is not optimism. Hope is a guarantee. It's a hope that Paul says in verse 5 of this passage that will not put us to shame. Why? Because we have a sovereign Lord who has guaranteed that it will be finished, and Christ has given us the down payment, the assurance that it will be finished. We see two different types of hope in this passage that Paul writes about. The first one is seen at the end of verse 2, where Paul says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is what I call the hope of future glory, that Christ through him purchasing us with his life, has also guaranteed for us that we will not always be subjected to our current condition. That he will see to it that we one day are glorified with him. This means that one day we will not live in a world where relationships are tense, where war dominates the news, where our own insecurities, our own shame, our own... Struggles with sin will be what we see when we look in the mirror. We will one day be glorified with God. That we will be like him. And what this means for us today, how this can comfort us today, is that God is not indifferent to your sufferings now. Because he, in his word, mentioned that you need hope. He doesn't say you should just be hopeful. He knows we need it. He knows we need to be reminded of it. He knows we need it poured into our hearts. God knows you're suffering. God knows you're struggling, and he gives you hope of future glory. The second type of hope we see in verse three and four, Paul uses the word produces three different times in this verse. He says uh, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And this is what I call the hope of present productivity. And what this means is that God has guaranteed our future glory. Our sufferings will cease. But also, in the present, our sufferings are not in vain. They are productive. They are actually doing something. And if you're like me, when I I see suffering, when I see my own insufficiency, when I see my own struggle with sin, when I see anything that disrupts comfort and leisure and happiness, very vain happiness, I run from it. Because I don't see any purpose in it. But God's word reminds us that suffering in the Christian life is actually productive. How is it productive? Because it's the same suffering that we get to go through, that we have the honor of going through, that Christ himself subjected himself to on the cross, that Christ came under sin. He took on our sin, our shame, the wrath of God willingly. And in subjecting himself to suffering, he didn't do it in vain. He went to the cross, and he bore our sins, knowing full and well that it would hurt, that it would be painful, that it would be scorning. But he knew that it would produce eternal life, the salvation for those in whom he loved. And we can have the hope that Christ had as well, because God will see to it that his beloved will come home to him, and that their sufferings will not be in vain. A Puritan once said, If you don't believe in justification by faith, then every trial is a double trial. Because not only are we suffering, but you also have to ask yourself if God loves you. Is there any purpose to this? The cross is evidence that God will never abandon us. Instead, he took the penalty for our sin upon himself. When we're suffering, we can know it's productive because we can look to the cross. In conclusion as we end our time together, I want to end on something that Paul says in verse 5. We've talked today about how oftentimes in our flesh, in our sin, and our shame, and in our own strength, we're tempted to despair. In this passage here, Paul is reminding us the benefits that we as believers have the right and have the privilege of taking hold to. But the sweetness of the gospel is that God not only gives us these benefits to take hold of, he actually gives us the power to take hold of them. That we, in our own strength, don't have the willpower, don't have the determination to have peace, access, and hope, and just find joy in this. We need another power. And Paul says at the end of verse 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That God has indwelled his Spirit in us allowing us to take hold of his benefits. So as we end today, I want our prayer to be the same as David's prayer in Psalm 51, verse 12, that God would restore to us the joy of our salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit, not in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Uh, We love you, and we need you. Lord, in our sin and our shame, we are tempted to despair when Satan tells us of the guilt within. But Father, by your Spirit, help us look upward towards the cross where we see Christ has made an end to all of our sin. It's him who is our hope. Lord, give us the strength to trust it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.